Happy Holidays, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Weber. This is episode number 10. Things have been moving along pretty well so far. Um, I know it's a busy time of year, so I do really appreciate you tuning in. I think I've got uh, a few interesting things for you to listen to today that might get you thinking about what you might be working on for next season. That's kind of um, my overall goal here for the off season is to uh, be setting goals and uh, doing things that you need to do to help improve yourself during the off season. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about timing. Timing is always very, very important in umpiring, something that uh, everyone, even the, the very best umpires struggle with from time to time. But obviously the um, the newer umpires or those that maybe are considered a little bit uh, lesser at times uh, really struggle with that. That um, really separates umpires. We're going to talk about goals once again, but a little bit different angle here. Smart goals specifically. Goals that you can uh, write down. Goals that are uh, long-term goals, maybe like a five-year plan. Let's talk about that. And then um, I'm going to present you with my my final Hall of Fame umpire for the um, umpire spotlight, Nestor Shylack. Very interesting guy. I think you'll find his story um, a little bit inspirational. Um, uh, he was a veteran during World War II and um, definitely overcame many obstacles to reach the major leagues and um, become a Hall of Fame umpire, which um, there's only 10 of those, and he's one of them. So hopefully, uh, if you're listening in your car, you know, everything's working well with your audio, got it all set, and I'm sounding all right. If you're on a portable device and you've got earbuds or headphones on, hopefully those are sounding pretty good too. Um, Sit back and and listen and, and think a little bit and plan for this Christmas time episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. A few episodes ago, I talked about goal setting. I'd like to revisit that topic today, specifically about writing down your goals. I recently read an article about this, and I definitely think that uh, it's an important topic and one that can be very beneficial to your officiating, any kind of officiating you do, but uh, specifically, of course, I'm talking about umpiring because this is an umpiring podcast, right? So one of the things is to try to figure out your plan for your officiating career and put it down on paper. This could be in some kind of notebook. It could be some kind of digital computer type file. I know umpires that do this and it's in their umpire bag and it's an invisible spot where they see these goals that they have, um, maybe just specifically for the year or long-term goals as well, they might see it every time that they're working. So whatever way you want to display it or keep it or be able to revisit it, that's kind of up to you. The specific type of goal making is the SMART goal principle, S-M-A-R-T, you know, an acronym here. Um, that means it's S for specific, M for measurable, 
A for attainable, R for relevant, and T for time-bound. Research has shown that when goals aren't clearly defined and purpose-driven and trackable, there are too many ways to get around it and to let it fall away. So, you know, procrastination, ambivalence, um, and staying too close to your comfort zone are things that uh, make it so that you can't reach specific goals that you might have. If you follow these uh, SMART goal principles, you're much more likely to set good goals and also, more importantly, attain them. As I've mentioned before, one of the most important things about setting goals for anything in your life, but here talking about umpiring, is setting goals that are grounded in what you actually can control. You can't set a goal that says you want to work the state championship in high school or an NCAA regional or something like that because you don't have control of whether or not you get those assignments. You can't set a goal that says I want to work 50 games or something like that during the summer or um, you know whenever it might be because unless you're assign- an assigner, you're not able to control that. So keep that in mind as you set your goals. Um, some examples of what might be specific goals that you could control could be something like the specific number of hours per week you use to uh, review video if you have that available of yourself or video of other umpires. Um, the amount of time spent studying, you know, conflict resolutions, you know, and game management uh, situations. Um, the You might set a specific goal, um, especially if you're a person that's a little more on the late side to get to your assignments, you know, 30 minutes early or one hour early or whatever is required of you, all right? Those kind of behaviors um, will help prepare you to be a, a better umpire and um, move ahead with other goals that you might have. By setting a goal of something that you can be um, better prepared for umpiring, you know, like studying your mechanics or studying the rule book, then you are able to gain confidence. And the more confidence you have when you step on a baseball field, um, the better job you're likely to do. Um, You need to feel like you belong on any field that you step on. If you um, feel like you're not prepared in some fashion, then you're more likely to underperform in your duties as an umpire. Uh, You have control over your physical fitness. You can certainly set physical fitness goals that you can um, hopefully attain, and that will also gain more confidence in your abilities your physical abilities when you're on the field. You can, you have control over the clinics and the camps that you attend. And um, obviously those cost money, um, but uh, sometimes you got to put some of the money into it if you want to reach certain goals. So those are things that are in your control as well. The other thing that I think sometimes falls under the cracks for a lot of umpires is uh, your networking. 
You can set goals for that because you do have a, a good amount of control for that. Um, the people that um, you, you know want to know to help move ahead. Now, you're not trying to necessarily like use them, but um, being being a kind of person that um, is, is a good partner and um, a, a person that wants to learn and a person that's fun to be around, those things can certainly help you if you are also a quality umpire. And it's not just the people that are above you that you're trying to have maybe potentially mentor you or move you ahead, but also being good with people that are at your current level or maybe that are a little below you at this time that are trying to move up, being a good person for everybody along the spectrum, all right? Those kind of things can certainly help you to um, get better assignments and reach some of the umpiring goals that you have. Whatever way you do that with your networking, you want to do it in a way that doesn't make you appear, and hopefully you're just not, self-serving and arrogant. Your actions should speak for themselves. Um, What you do on a a ball field should be apparent whether you can handle things or not. Um, Maybe at some point you're not very good at certain things and you keep working at them, and then those that make decisions that pertain to your career will notice that and you'll move forward. Um, You don't want to be one of those guys that's a braggart that's always out there trying to promote themselves and, and, you know, taking their resume basically out of their back pocket and telling everybody how good they are. If you're good, people will know it. Um, So keep that in mind, too, because nobody likes an arrogant person, that's for sure. So as you try to write down these goals, try to construct like a five-year plan. Um. This, you know, eventually leads to kind of a lifetime process, I guess. But um, one-year goals um, can head, you know, toward a five-year goal plan as well. Um, But you need to be trying to write down what you're doing maybe daily or weekly to do something toward your overall plan. Um, And then when you build those into daily habits... You can start developing a clear focus and the confidence that you know you're on the way to whatever it is you're trying to reach. Of course, along the way, you know, things are never really smooth or straight. And there's obstacles that are going to be in your way. Um, maybe physically you have some issues. Maybe things, um, you know, don't progress as quickly as you'd like. But if you stick to it and you love the game and you like being out there doing it, then eventually you should be able to reach your goals. So you you have to have that stay to it kind of mentality to make sure that you reach them. You can't just give up because it doesn't happen exactly the way you had it planned out on your piece of paper. So that's my challenge for you for this uh, upcoming season is to sit down and and plan out a five-year plan and try to get as specific as possible year by year, for what your goals are. And then um, try to meet those goals uh, on a weekly or possibly even daily basis and see how it works out for you over the next few years or just year by year. See what you can do. Um, I have specific goals in mind for myself that maybe I'll share in some future episode. But uh, I do have them written down as well. 
And um, they're always kind of bouncing around in my head. I know you probably have some bouncing around in your head too, but the thing you got to do is uh, sit down and write them down. And then they become more concrete. They're not just these abstract thoughts that are in your brain, but they're concrete things that you're moving toward to, um, to try to accomplish. Um, it's, you know, psych- psychologists talk about that and uh, it makes them more real and more attainable if you can do that. So any feedback you might have on this topic uh, or certainly any goals that uh, or goal setting that you've done in the past, I'd appreciate hearing about it. Feel free to leave me a voicemail on the anchor.fm uh, app or send me an email. For our mechanics segment, I like to talk about timing. Timing when you're working the plate and timing when you're working the bases. Uh, Timing is probably the most important thing a good umpire has. Um, Timing not only helps you sell your calls and make better calls, it also makes things easier on your partner or partners um, because they know what to expect from you Um, and things flow smoothly, and you make better decisions. So when we're talking about timing on the plate, um, we we all kind of know what it looks like when somebody's a little too quick when they're calling their pitches, or the ball is barely hitting the glove and they're calling it a ball or they're calling it a strike. Um, We know that a majority of the time, they probably can get it right. But there are those handful of times in every game that if you do call it quickly, uh, you're going to cause yourself some grief, and um, especially on those closer pitches. Um, it just, more than anything, I think, it, it takes time and practice and uh, concentration to manage your timing. And everybody, um, some people more susceptible that, than others, I suppose, um, can get quick um, if a game gets tense if something else is going on inside your head or you have a slight lack of concentration, I'm not saying you like lose control of what you're thinking about for the whole game, but just that little, that you lose that little edge, um, then your timing can uh, quicken up a bit. And sometimes you don't even notice it. Uh, I know that I personally have had that problem before. Um, I've made some good progress on it over the last few years, but I am still susceptible to being too quick uh, when I'm calling pitches. Um, Luckily, I've had some very good games, you know, in the last few years where I had very good timing. But still, I I know, I know it is an issue for me, uh, and I'm sure it is for a lot of you guys too, and um, something I always have to be conscious of. And um, I think this year, one of my goals is when I'm working with um, partners, especially partners that... um, you know, I, I trust a little bit more, but it can be anybody, even a, a newer guy, I guess, um, to have some kind of signal that if they think that I'm getting a little quick on some pictures or something, um, you know, to give me a little subtle signal to let me know that they're noticing that in case I personally don't notice it. Um, what, you know, technique you use to call balls and strikes certainly can make a difference for this. Um I think guys that use the scissors, which is an older technique now, and, and a lot of guys are moving away from that. Um, 
and they're not really teaching that anymore in uh, camps and clinics, uh, nor the, the umpire schools. But um, if you know, and one of the reasons too is because it can be tough on your knees. But um, I, I think that uh, when guys do use the scissors, I think that it is possible for guys to be um, a little more deliberate with their calls so their timing looks a little bit better. But uh, guys are kind of getting away from that. As you know, the, the show is called The Hammer, so I use The Hammer. And The Hammer can be very quick, sometimes too quick, uh, for sure. If you use a pointing technique you know, from a box stance, like most of you are probably using as you're getting into the slot, um, that can help to slow down your timing a little bit too. I know for sure that if you are a hammer call, um, ball, you know, ball and strike guy, um, that you definitely are more susceptible, I think, to being a little bit quick with things. So be aware of that. I mean, you got to know where you stand, I guess, and kind of know what you're doing so that, um, you can make corrections as needed. I mean, I, I suppose if you're using the scissors and, and your knees are bothering you, then maybe you're popping, you would pop out of that a little bit quick sometimes too and um, maybe be quick. But um, nonetheless, whatever technique that you use, you need to be seeing the ball all the way into the glove and um, you know, making sure that you're processing each pitch. And if you're processing each pitch, uh, in the same way, then your timing will be will be good, and you know you just know it when you see it. All right, so that's with the plate. What about uh, on the bases? Well, as one of my um, uh, mentors and colleagues um, says, Nick Sweeney, he says that um, good timing is is proper use of eyes, and he's a hundred percent right. And uh, this is particularly important at first base. Uh, to um, use your eyes and, 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 you know, turn your eyes with the play properly, but also um, with plays at first base to see the voluntary release of the ball from the first baseman or if he's happened to make a tag after he's made a tag as well. And if you do that, then you're going to have the proper timing as well and be able to see a ball that's dropped, or a tag or something that's missed, or whatever it might be, you know, a pulled foot or something like that as well. Um, you know, slow and deliberate, you know, taking your time. It's nothing until you call it. And we have a lot of plays at first base, so that is vitally and particularly important to make sure you're doing that. The other plays that we have a lot on the bases um, are steals of second base, right? That's probably the second after, after our force outs at first base. So, you know, we're usually um, getting ourselves into a set position to make a call. Um, if you're working two-man, you're, you're in the B position. Uh, I guess you could be in C. Some guys do, do, do that with maybe like first and third or something. But you, you're t- typically supposed to be in B for that if you're following your mechanics correctly. So you're taking your drop step. You're moving with the throw. Um, you're getting set and, and getting the best angle you can. Um, and making sure that um, you see the whole play um, before you render your call, right? Um, and again, you know, I guess it's just the more plays you take and sometimes making that mistake where you're making a, a safe out or an out safe, you know, when the ball is dropped or not dropped or something like that um, can certainly make um, a big difference uh, on your timing. And, you know, you make that mistake and you feel very foolish. Um, you're like, I'm not doing this again. Well, you know. Usually that's, it might be a long time before you do it again, but 
Invariably, guys would do that. You even see professionals do that at times where they're getting a little quick or even the the really good NCAA Division One umpires, every once in a while, they get a little quick too. I mean, I'm watching them on TV and, you know, people are human. Stuff happens sometimes and, you know, it'll bug you the rest of the day, I'm sure, but uh, you learn your lesson and um, slow yourself down. The other um, major component of good timing um, that particularly affects your partners is uh, your outfield coverage and your pause, read, react abilities. Um, You know, you have to, everybody, whether you're working two man, three or four, you always have more time than you think. Um, And then as you, you know, as guys bump up to three man or four man, um, they're a little maybe less confident in their ability to make sure they're in the right spot or they're doing the rotation correctly. Um, and then they have a fly ball and they you know don't want to miss something. So they go out when they maybe shouldn't go out or they don't go out when they should go out or they're kind of in between um, going out or not and their partner's watching them and they don't know what they're doing. So they don't know where they're supposed to be rotating because you're not uh, – kind of quarterbacking things correctly, especially if you're quarterbacking the outfield coverages. So um, the timing on those um, are important. And of course, if you do go out, you go out hard, but making sure that you're set so that you can make a good call, not um, straight lining yourself on fly balls, you know, getting, getting an angle the best you can so you can see as much as the glove as possible if the guy is making a catch, especially if his, his back is to you um, or he's moving away from you in some way. Um, those are important aspects there um, that uh, you have to, you know, pause and read, react, but be decisive so that your partners can also know what you're doing so that they can make proper decisions themselves. That's why it's really important to have um, good pregame meetings on outfield coverages, whether you're working two, three, or four man mechanics. But particularly if you're not as comfortable with whatever mechanics you're working for that game. But even if you're working two-man mechanics, you you need to discuss that with your partner so that um, you guys are both on the same page and know how each other kind of reacts. And, and also just being honest where, you know, if you um, have a tendency to do something a little funky or something, um, make sure your partner knows that so that... Um, they're not surprised when something happens if you happen to react in a certain way. Um, or if there's something that you're working on that you maybe feel like you don't do particularly well, but you're trying to do it, make sure that they understand that or, or they can help you as well. And then that communication, especially if you're working, let's say you're working three-man where, where the uh, the first and third base umpires can should be communicating with one another whose ball it is, where they're going. You know, guys are, are you know, yelling at each other not yelling as in like they're mad, but, you know, raising their voices and making themselves heard so that, um, you know, everybody knows where they're rotating, whose ball it is, what's going on. Um, Good communication like that is vitally important for a good crew and and a well-umpired game. All these things are things that um, I am personally always working on, always working on my timing uh, on every base that I'm working and um, on all my outfield coverages. Of course, you know, I work a lot more two-man, so I feel much more comfortable with that. But I try to work on the same kind of techniques that I'm working in two-man that um, should transfer to two or to three and four-man as well. Um, so that when I get those opportunities, hopefully I will um, react properly and just do what I'm doing. I mean, you want it to be um, a muscle memory kind of thing 
so that um, you just do it correctly all the time. You know, you, you read a fly ball, and that's just the way you read fly balls, no matter what kind of system that you're working. Um, no matter what system you're working, when you are, you know, uh, working first base, that's the way that uh, you work the base, you know. Um, whether you're working two, three, or four man, if you're taking a steel play, you're taking that steel play, and you've got the same kind of timing. Doesn't matter if you're working two, three, or four man, you know, if you're calling balls and strikes, yeah, you got a few different rotations and some responsibilities that you have for each of the uh, the types of mechanics, but you're calling your balls and strikes and trying to do it um, the same consistent way every single game. So we've, you know, mentioned things about goals and such. Um, maybe those are some goals that um, you can put down for yourself to try to work on for this upcoming season. For this episode's umpire spotlight, we're going to look at Hall of Fame umpire Nestor Shylack. Shylack is the final Hall of Fame umpire that I need to uh, spotlight. Um, I'm sure someday there will be another umpire to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and maybe by that time I will have already spotlighted them. But uh, that's not going to be happening anytime soon. However, there are many other interesting umpires that are with us today and were with us in the past that I can take a look at in future episodes. Shylock was an American League umpire, and he worked from 1954 until 1978. And like many umpires, he has quite an interesting path to the major leagues. Um, usually guys start from some humble beginnings frequently. I mean, you don't usually have a lot of rich guy umpires and uh, work their way through the minor leagues and work their way through life and uh, make it to the top. And that is definitely the case with uh, Shylock. Shylock was born May 11, 1922 in Pennsylvania near Scranton in the uh, northeastern part of the state. His parents were of Ukrainian descent and um, they had a large family of five kids and uh, all of the children, of course, were first-generation Americans. His, uh, his dad operated a bar. Um, so he had two sisters and two brothers, and uh, a the couple of the brothers died when they were young. Um, as he graduated from high school, he attended Rutgers University briefly in 1939 and 40, but uh, his studies were interrupted by the Second World War. He was a sergeant in the Army Ranger Battalion, and Shylock served in the Army in the European theater and was wounded on January 3, 1945, during the infamous Battle of the Bulge, when fragments of a tree hit by shrapnel smashed into his face. Uh, for 10 days, he couldn't see, but he eventually recovered his eyesight, and he was awarded the Purple Heart for his wound and the Silver Star for his gallantry in action. Quite amazing that uh, probably the most important sense and uh, physical ability you have as an umpire is your sight. And for several days, um, when he was a young man, he was blind. Like um, many young men and those that grew up in the greatest generation, the World War II generation, uh, he never really talked about the horrors of the battlefield. His son Bill thought that his dad's generosity and kindness to people grew out of his loneliness on the road, 
But another son, Bob, said that the friends that their dad had lost in battle had something to do with it. Anyway, after returning to the U.S. after the war, Shylock briefly resumed some college studies at the University of Scranton, but he didn't finish his degree. He wanted to play baseball, uh, but a shoulder injury prevented him from doing so. That's frequently the case with lots of umpires, right? So he decided to try umpiring. So in 1946, he began umpiring amateur baseball games in the Northeastern Pennsylvania League, and he decided to pursue umpiring as a career, uh, beginning in the minor leagues in 1947. Finally, um, he made it through the minors, and on April 13, 1954, at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C., Shylock made his debut in the American League. He worked third base in a 10-inning game where the Senators prevailed over the New York Yankees 5-3. That uh, began a major league career that spanned 25 years and 3,857 regular season games. Um, he was a home plate umpire for 974 of those games, and he was a crew chief for 14 years, mentoring rookie and younger umpires along the way. A key to his success on the field was his demeanor. Um, He was decisive, consistent, authoritative, and unflappable. He let players have their say, and then he moved on. Uh, Once a manager or player stopped arguing, he let the dispute drop. Um, that technique is a, a very modern technique for how umpires are now taught to handle situations. They say that he had the baseball rule book memorized by paragraph and by section, ensuring that he knew the rules cold. So his preparation meant he never lost an argument, even to well-informed managers, you know, like an Earl Weaver. Uh, Shylock was proud of the fact that he never threw Weaver out of a game. <laughs> which, you know, Weaver is up there on the all-time list of getting thrown out of games. In his 25 years as a major league umpire, Shylock ejected only 24 players, managers, and coaches, an ejection rate that's one of the lowest among umpires in major league history. They say that Shylock had a good sense of humor. He's the one with the famous quote saying, "...the way I see it, an umpire must be perfect on the first day of the season." and then get better every day. We see a lot of people re-quoting that, but it was Shylock that said it first. And then he also made uh, a quip one time saying, this must be the only job in America that everybody knows how to do better than the guy who's doing it. Many people in the game at the time uh, respected Shylock. Uh, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn said that few have ever been more respected in his field. Everybody looked up to him. And I developed more respect every time I saw him in a World Series or an All-Star game. Um, Hall of Famer Herman Killebrew called him one of the best umpires in the American League for years and years. He said, I think he had a great rapport with the players. Uh, Hall of Famer Jim Palmer said, I think anybody who ever played while Nestor umpired understood how much he loved the game and how much he loved people. And uh, Brooks Robinson called him my favorite umpire. Um, He was known as a pitcher's umpire, and his philosophy was never to call a strike a ball. Uh, Former player and coach uh, Dick Trzewski said that uh, he thought that Shylock was acceptable. He thought it was acceptable to call a ball a strike once in a while, but that Shylock thought that it was never the opposite because it slowed the game down. Uh, 
that's definitely something we can all take away from that. Um, in a time when selection of postseason and all-star games was based on merit, uh, Shylock was chosen to umpire in five World Series, three League Championship Series, and six All-Star games. Uh, his first World Series was in 1957 when he worked the left and right field lines for all seven games of the Yankees-Brave series. He also umpired in the 1960, 1966, 1971, and 1977 World Series, serving as crew chief in 71 and 77. Um, Shylock umpired in the American League for his whole career, um, and he retired long before you know the umpiring staffs were consolidated. He was behind the plate for the first Major League game in Toronto at Exhibition Stadium in 1977, a contest made uh, very memorable because there was a snowstorm during the game. Uh, He called balls and strikes in Sandy Koufax's last Major League game, Game 2 of the 1966 World Series. And uh, he was also the plate umpire when Burt Campaneris threw his bat at pitcher Laren LeGrau during the 72 playoffs uh, between the A's and the Tigers. Uh, he, of course, and Nestor, of course, ejected both players, as it should have been. Um, he was third base umpire for the 1974 10 cent beer night game between Cleveland and the Texas Rangers. Uh, that was June 4th of 74. Uh, that was the time that the players doused by beer by mid game. Uh, players were doused by beer by mid game. Hundreds of inebriated fans stormed the field in the ninth inning, and both teams fled the field for their own safety. Uh, the fans stole the bases, and then they threw objects, including bottles, rocks, cups, radio batteries, and folding chairs. And uh, Shylock was struck in the head and cut by part of a stadium chair and also hit in the hand by a rock. The crew chief, um, he realized, being the crew chief, he realized that order could not be restored, and he forfeited the game, which was tied at the time. He forfeited it to Texas. Anyway, his career ended in Toronto in July 1978 uh, when he became ill uh, working a night game after a spell of uh, difficult travel. Some of his umpiring colleagues thought that he suffered a, a mild stroke, but but Shylock and his family said that that was not the case. It was just exhaustion. But nonetheless, um, from that time on, his umpiring days were over. And so after he retired, he became an assistant supervisor of umpires for the American League. And uh, he traveled around watching umpires and supervising. And he was present in Chicago on another infamous night, Disco Demolition Night, on July 12, 1979. Um, Between games, the disco records were um, blown up on the field, you know, trying to get rid of disco, I guess. And then uh, thousands of spectators stormed the field and a riot was on. So Shylock informed owner Bill Veck, you know, owner of the White Sox at the time, that the second game could not be played. And despite, you know, Feck protesting that, the American League president, Lee McPhail, at the time upheld Shylock's decision. Anyway, the next day, McPhail ordered the second game forfeited to Detroit rather than rescheduled. So in retirement, uh, Shylock became a member of um, the Sports Illustrated Speakers Bureau, and he spoke about the intangible lessons he'd learned from his years on Pyrene baseball. And his, uh, his son said that his father was... Um, the biggest politician on behalf of baseball that there ever was. He just loved the game. 
Uh, Charlotte gave away stuff. He gave away bats and baseballs and other memorabilia to friends and family and sometimes even total strangers. And he'd visit patients in the Veterans Hospital in Pennsylvania each week. And then uh, during the offseason, he spoke to Little Leaguers or Boy Scouts or any other group, and he'd do it without charge. As evidenced by um, baseballs and cards signed by him on, um, on auction, like on eBay and stuff, he signed his autograph with the words, Play Hard and Fair which is interesting. Anyway, he, he died in, um, in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, of an apparent heart attack in February 1982, uh, three months before his 60th birthday. And he's buried there in the cemetery in Pennsylvania. Um, Shylock was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in July 1999 after election by the Veterans Committee. Um, a committee in his hometown had begun lobbying the Veterans Committee on behalf of Shylock, uh, collecting signatures and letters of endorsement. And uh, both um, and Shylock's son, Bob, spoke at the induction ceremony. Nestor Shylock's Hall of Fame plaque reads, Considered by many to be the non-parallel umpire of the post-war era, a model of consistency with invariable accuracy both behind the plate and on the basis respected by players and managers alike, effectively combining authoritarianism, tact, and a sense of humor. Lauded for his willingness to lend an ear to objections, his illustrious 25-year career included six All-Star games and five World Series assignments. Served many years as a crew chief and then as assistant supervisor of American League umpires from 1979 to 1982. So that's our Umpire Spotlight this week, Nestor Shylack. Well, that concludes this episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. I thank you for listening all the way to the end, and I hope that you found uh, some of my material in this episode uh, insightful and um, thought-provoking. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, I always welcome them. You can uh, reach me through my Facebook page at The Hammer Show. Uh, you could leave me a voicemail through the anchor.fm uh, website or through the Anchor app. Or you can send me an email at spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. And uh, I'd be very happy to um, answer any of those things and, and try to maybe use that material in our next show. We should have uh, one more show before the end of the year and, and the end of the decade, I guess. Um, so that will drop uh, next week. And as you might notice, I try to have these shows um, posted uh, on Sunday. That's always the goal. Um, we'll see how long I can keep that going. Maybe I'll be a day off or a day early here and there. But uh, that's kind of the goal, at least here during the off season when I have a little bit more time. Um, I'll be doing a lot of assigning in the coming weeks and then in, in the coming months as well. And then, of course, starting to umpire. Um, so that will, you know, that will kind of throw a little wrench into things. But I'm going to try to keep it going. And obviously I'll have new things to talk about, um, new things that will be popping up um, in, in situations that I have, and maybe you will as well, that will be easy to talk about as we go through the season. You know, just specific kind of um game by game kind of things that happen or maybe there's a situation that happens to me or maybe there's one that will happen to you that you can share with me and um, I can give you my takes on it or we can get some people on and, and talk about that. 
So that's kind of what I've got going here um, to conclude the year. And um, I hope you continue listening. And if you like my podcast, uh, tell your other umpire buddies and friends and uh, have them take a listen and see if they like it as well. All right. Until next time, keep calling strikes.